Welcome to the inside. It's hard to imagine a more interesting and yet important moment for Hollywood and the movie business. The long-awaited Avatar sequel, The Way of Water, has finally come to cinema, and award season has begun as fans and voters screen films from some of the industry's most respected directors. I am Jim Chabin in Los Angeles, and later in this program, we'll be speaking with James Gray, the writer and director of the critically acclaimed motion picture Armageddon Time, which is in theaters now. With me now is our co-host, Wim Byans. He serves as CEO of Cineonic, and he joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it's evening. Good evening, Wim. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good to see you. Wim, the talk of the week has been Avatar, and the reviews are coming in, and I just want to read a couple of these to you uh, and get your take on it. Hollywood Reporter, this is a work that successfully marries technology and imagination. James Cameron has done it again. Another review, James Cameron once again shows filmmakers how it's done. Uh, This is nothing short of a good old-fashioned Cameron blockbuster, full of filmmaking spectacle and heart. By the end of this movie, you'll be amazed at the story that was told, marvel at how it was told, but also anxiously await what Cameron has in store for us in the next edition in 2024. That's that's as that's as good as you get, right? I just want to say to re- those are great critics. Right? So yeah, yeah, you get yeah. Those reviews, so uh, no, I think that we all knew that that uh, James Cameron is is an artsman if it's about using the technology and and really bringing that to life. Of course. It's been a long in the making to get another great 3D movie, I would say, right? He has definitely done that. Uh, and that's what, what the review is also stating. So I think that's fantastic. At the same token, I think uh, hearing and that, of course, the movie needed to be out to see that, that the storyline is being very much appreciated is an important one, right? Because technology goes one way, but you need a good storyline. And he seems to have done that very well. So. So 13 years ago, when the first version came out in 2009, 2010, obviously projectors were projecting as much light as they could, but a lot of people said the 3D, you know, it was not as bright as as people had hoped and 3D was in its earliest stage. If we go see Avatar this week, and many of us will, what's the technology in the projection booth this time around by comparison to what it would have been a decade ago? Well, I think James Cameron has been pushing two boundaries, if I may say, right? Uh, one thing he's been pushing the light levels on 3D. Now, four and a half foot Lambert is 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 what typically we want to get out to everybody. He's pushing it to six foot Lambert, right? And he's even going further to, to nine foot Lambert. But, the, but he puts the bar reasonably out there where we also set as an industry, the minimum is where we want to be. The second thing he does, he pushes also on the boundary of high frame rates, right? Seeing more frame rates. And there he's pushed it out to 48 frames per second uh, and, and even beyond that. And a viewer will notice that in action sequences. What does that do? It brings a degree of realism to the to the, the frame? That's right. So the, the higher frame rates, it's um, people typically want to use it where there's a lot of action happening. And typically in the movie going, we use 24 frames per second. And that gives the filmatic experience, right? Um, and especially when you look at, at, at landscaping, sceneries, and, and big shots, that, that does tremendously well. But when I get in close-ups or, or when I get in action scenes, people want to have more frames. And that's where, where typically this comes to his, to his real value uh, there. You were just at Cine uh, Asia in Bangkok in Thailand, and uh, they just announced that Avatar will actually get a chance to roll out in China, which is encouraging news from that part of the Absolutely. world. What yeah. was the mood at Cine Asia this year? 
you know, it's four years ago that we had the last in Asia. I think it was 2018. So long in the making. I think the mood was good, was very good. Everybody was very happy to be back there. Of course, the, the big challenge we had is that there was very little to none participation from China, right? You know, given the situation where we are with COVID and some of the restrictions of traveling. So that was, I think, the, the, the lesser point. But if I look at the whole region of APAC was well represented. And it was great to see so many customers uh, coming back. So I think that we need to build up the rhythm again. And I do hope very much that next year we get China, welcome China back in, into the venue, right? But I think it was a good show. There was a lot of talk about Avatar, of course, right? There was a lot of talk about, you know, laser projection and, and, and how to do that. There was talk about immersive sounds, right? So, so the right things were discussed, uh, how to improve premium experiences. So very great topics were showing there and, and a, good, uh, a good crowd, yeah. While you were in Asia, we had a chance to talk with James Gray, the award-winning director of Armageddon Time, starring Anthony Hopkins. And what he said was, we need to make room for more mid-sized motion pictures, the kind that he makes. And he said, I take my kids to see the Marvel movies and they're fantastic. But uh, there is a whole center group of motion pictures that we need to create space for. And it it occurred to me who needs to hear this because I see we've had Tim Richards on he yes. you know we have the our cinema friends have come on this program and said that 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 needs to happen who needs to hear that is it the studios to create that product Yeah, I think that it, it's a good question, right? So absolutely, I would say right the studios need to hear that. Now I know it takes time to build movies. You can't just you know say next month I'm going to get a new movie. So you need to be in in that pipeline. The other thing which was very much a good talking point at Cine Asia was local content, right? We had a lot of Japanese friends. They had great movies this year. The beginning of the year, for instance, India had great great movies on local content, right? I call them local blockbusters for them. Made a very different year for them, right? Just having those uh, coming out. So so I think we, we have, it's the moment that local content really can flourish even more because there's not even competition, I would say, in that sense, uh, in the mid-range. And the local content does something else because, of course, yes, it is local, so, so the language element, it, it makes it more addressable for a broader audience. And it can also different themes which can be uh, made, made a movie about, right? The blockbuster sits in a certain genre, if I may say, uh, but here you can go much broader. We're starting the year with, with Avatar. The pandemic seems to be behind us. China feels like it might be opening up. So all in all, I think we can look forward to 2023 and, uh, as you say, improve on 2022 and have a strong and profitable year for everybody. Yeah, I think, yeah, we we should look. And and I think that's at least how I see it and and many people with me confidently to 2023, right? Being a better year, uh, being a continuation of, of a growing year, it will as much for renewal or new technology, uh, allowing people to create cash flows. On the other hand, uh, experimenting with new ideas, being able to attract more content, people will will be more creative and fight harder for that because they know how much it's needed. And I think that also the studios have, have seen the content creators that how much money there is to earn with bringing at a window uh, to the cinemas. We're probably going to have some of the streaming companies, you know, uh, you know, a lot of talk about that. Some of their titles there, we don't need every of the streaming companies, a handful of titles makes one hell of a difference, right? In the big picture, so, yeah. Well, there was a there was a story this week that Knives Out was released and it was released in theaters for a relatively short window. 
Yeah. And there was a calculation that had that stayed in theaters, they'd have probably made it another $100 million yes. before yeah, it went to streaming. So yeah. it seems as if even the streamers are realizing, certainly with Bob Iger back at Disney, they're big believers that the theater and the cinema experience is irreplaceable as, as far as a profit component for a film and also for a marketing one. So that's encouraging. No, 100%. I, I, I fully concur with that. And, and the more... Uh, consensus there is around that the more people believe in it the more the industry will be seen as okay it has a good future and people are willing to invest and we need to attract investors and you do that with with a, a stable industry or an industry which, which shows growth and i think both is what uh, we have the prospect to do so fantastic we'll be back with our conversation with james gray right after this The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. Cineonic's future-ready enhanced services and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 95,000 projectors installed globally, cinemas around the world trust laser projection by Cineonic to power the next generation of moviegoing. Visit Cineonic.com today and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Our guest insider today is James Gray, the writer-director of this year's highly acclaimed film, Armageddon Time. His works include Little Odessa, The Lost City of Z, Ad Astra, We Own the Night, and more than 20 other works. His films have been honored regularly by the Cannes and the Venice Film Festival, and he joins us today from Los Angeles. Welcome, James Gray. Hi, how are you? I have looked forward to this since I saw your film, which I saw over Thanksgiving. And I have to say, James, it's in my top two or three of the year. Um, yeah, I, I think about it a lot. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, that's what it's there for, right? It's uh, it's It's touching. Um, but even before we begin, uh, where does the title come from, Armageddon Time? When I was a, a kid, I'm sure I'm sure you, uh, a lot of your listeners actually can remember this moment, you know, but it was like there was this bipolar world, you know, you had the United States and the Soviet Union, and this idea of nuclear holocaust, Armageddon, was constantly in the air. I remember dealing with that as a kid. <clears throat> My parents would say, you know, that this this was a possibility, if not a probability, and you know we lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know, and then Ra right. Reagan would talk about it in very kind of biblical terms, right? He called them the evil empire, and and certainly even Carter, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, spoke about the struggle in fairly biblical terms. So it was hanging over our heads, this idea of Armageddon, and I also around this time was. Uh, became a huge fan of the group The Clash. And they had a song called Armageddon Time, uh, which uh, actually is a cover of a reggae song by a singer named Willie Williams. But Willie Williams is, is in a major key. It's a very almost upbeat version, right? A lot of people don't get no supper tonight like this. And The Clash brought danger to it and put it in a minor key. And uh, it seemed to me that this was Armageddon Time both uh, publicly and also for the kids involved in the story, because life is relative. And it's a kind of the two kids part ways that are in the narrative. And uh, it's their personal Armageddon in a way. So that was the idea behind the title. 
This story takes place in 1980, and it's centered around a young man learning about life in America. Here's what the New York Times critic A.O. Scott said in his glowing review. Armageddon time is less interested in cataloging moral failings than in investigating the contradictions they inhabit and swirl of mixed messages and ethical compromises that define Paul's emerging sense of the world and his place in it. He hears a lot, including from one of the Trumps, about hard work and independence and also about the importance of connections. He's told the game is rigged against him, and he is also rigged in his favor. He's instructed to fit in and fight back, to follow his dreams, and to be realistic. A lot of the, a lot of contradictions in there, right? Yeah, I was very, um, I was very obsessed with the idea of this cognitive dissonance that we deliver to children. You know, a lot of times, I think it's misinterpreted. People say, uh, children are beautiful, they're innocent. Well, children are not innocent. Uh, children are blank slates. There's a difference. You have to fill up a, a child with an ethical and moral compass. They're not born with it. Now, that hole used to be filled, I think, a lot by religion or the parables. Anyway, it was supposed to be filled by religion, the parable. I'm not a religious person, but I do think it, for me, it, in some ways, it was my grandfather, but also art in general. But I think that this idea of the cognitive dissonance that children face is the number one struggle for them. That if you're told to fit in at the same time that you're supposed to do the right thing, uh, these are often absolute contradictions. So how do you deal with this? Well, I think this is about the... Uh, unending complexities and layers of the world, and that it's not reducible. It's why finger-pointing and moralizing in art, as in elsewhere, is inherently a grotesque tradition, because you can't really boil things down to simple answers or lessons. You have a, a stunning cast, uh, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, Anthony Hopkins, Jeremy Strong, and remarkable performances by three young actors, uh, Michael Banks and Jalen Webb and Ryan Sell. Um, you told writer Richard Brody that you're a big fan of great actors and you certainly work with many of them. What do they, how do you use them to tell your story? What do they do for you? Well, the idea here was, I, I kind of, and I, I don't generally like to say this because first of all, it's not true usually. And second of all, is something kind of, seemingly mercenary about it. But uh, in this film, I did want famous people to play the parents and the granddad. Because when you're a, a child, you look up to adults, they seem like gods to you. And the idea was very much to put us in, in, in those kids' point of view, so that the parents would seem bigger than life for the kids' perspective. And so what do they give you? Uh, a lot of these people are successful and famous because they're great. You know, so when you work with them, your level of discourse as a director is already elevated. And the way that you work with them is to encourage a kind of surprise as opposed to just getting something usable, which is a big difference. So you bring in talented actors and give them your words and see what comes from that. And what you find it to be is a much richer, it's much richer than it was on the page? Well, I, I, I mean, I've said this uh, publicly and privately many times before, but, you know, this idea that you sit around and you come up with a story, and then what you want is everybody to execute your vision, 
It's not really correct. Uh, it doesn't work like that because once you have other people involved in the mix, it, it's going to change. So the question then becomes this. Are you going to, as the writer-director, are you going to try and force everybody to come back to your original position, which is a fight? Or are you going to say, okay, this is going to change, but can it grow? Can it become something better than I had in my head? Now, in my case, um, I have many problems in life, as my wife and children will tell you, but one of them is not having an ego about this. And I love stealing great ideas. So if, if I have people that are coming to expand the original idea, I'm really happy. And you try to be open to those things. And great people, great actors, great technicians, great artists, that's what, that's what they're there for, to help you look better. As I walked out of the theater uh, over Thanksgiving, having seen this, I told my friend who uh, goes to the movies with me, Anthony Hopkins is a, I'd call him a national treasure, but he's British. <laughs> he really gives voice and embodies integrity in this film, right? How did you come to cast him? And what what is his function in this story? Uh, and I think it keys off to your, your last comment, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, my, gran my own grandfather, uh, upon whom that character is based, was a quite urbane guy. And he was not the sort of... Uh, cliche of what we might call the representation of Jewish people in the United States, often in cinema, which is like, I want to get the pickle, my name is Moshe, you know, this kind of thing. He wasn't like that at all. He was, he had come through uh, England and uh, first Hamburg, actually, and then in Germany and then uh, Southampton in England. And so he was very much a, a very uncliched in cinema terms. Uh, vision of what we call American Jewry, American Jewish life. And so I, I thought to myself, well, who's the best person to play that kind of guy? And really, it was a list of one. It was uh, Tony Hopkins. But I didn't think he would do it because he's Anthony Hopkins, you know. <laughs> and uh, I have uh, a realistic sense of myself on planet Earth, I think. Uh, and so I, I basically just said, well, I'll try. And, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, what's what's to lose? And I sent his agent the script and he said, no, well, Tony knows your work and loves it. And, and this is not out of the realm of possibility. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a week later, I got a text saying uh, he wants to do it, which is, I mean, it's like insane for a film. I mean, look, this is not my first day at the rodeo. I've made many films. I've worked with great actors. But you're talking, as you correctly put it, as some about somebody who really is in the top three or four or five people who have ever done it on screen. So um, when you have that kind of magic, uh, you're just great, you're just great good fortune is something to be happy about, right? And, and just to be thankful for. In uh, Life of Pi, in, in the conclusion of the, the book, Jan Martel says, we must give life meaningful shape. And I wonder, is that what you do as a director? I know that you do films you do, operas. What is what is making a movie? Is it giving life meaningful shape, making sense out of something that's not sensical? I've always found that my, my job is to convey to you the most personal and intimate aspects of myself that I can. It's like the purpose of all of art 
is to understand the other person's point of view, uh, to see into another consciousness. It's the closest thing we've got. We don't have mind-reading machines. So I always found my calling to be to try to do that and to fight for this personal expression, because that's where art actually lives. And so key to that, key to being daring in the arena of the artist is sincerity. So I, I feel that... Uh, I need to be very sincere with you about my view of the world. And if it doesn't mean anything to you, that's totally valid. But maybe it might. So I feel that the best artists are the ones who do the best you can and you make as personal expression as you can. And you hope that sooner or later it means something to somebody down the line. That's what it's about. James, we'd love to ask you about the state of the cinema. You've... Uh lamented and i think we we just had the the ceo of view uh, theaters from the uk on and uh, the ceo of sinopolis in mexico and latin america basically saying they need mid-range movies and i know it's a it's a topic that's close to your heart but what is the state of cinema how are you feeling about it and and what do we need to do to make sure it's resilient in 2023 it's such a big question i guess the first thing i would say is that the pandemic really needs to be left behind us. I don't think that the older audiences who generally attend these kinds of pictures are back yet. So leaving that aside, you're asking a larger sort of cultural question. The question is, do we have filmmakers who can address this? And the answer, I think, is yes. The larger issue is, is there an audience left to enjoy it? that is, these movies in a theater. It is incumbent upon people who are sort of the cultural guardians or the people who write about cinema, write about culture, to honor and in some ways protect this sliver. Because if they don't, um, it will go away. It's sort of like you have to nurture and create the audience that you're attempting to satisfy. But in order to uh, maintain a broad-based interest in the product, we need to make sure that people have varying and varied expectations of what cinema can be and what it can mean. I reject this kind of rotten tomatoizing of our culture because what it does is it devalues an evolved discourse about the works themselves. Now, some of this comes from, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, this kind of introduction of that in movie criticism. Uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were wonderful people and very well-intentioned in many ways. But this sort of reduced movies to a kind of trashy approach. And I think it has helped educate the audience out of demanding complexity from cinema. So I think a lot of it has to do with the people who are in prominent positions of the culture embracing a more complex and complicated view of this. That's a good point. I, I understand this is a kind of highfalutin, long-winded way of answering your question, but it's not merely a matter of business. It's not merely a matter of like putting the movie in the theater, even if COVID were cured tomorrow, that in a sense, what we have done is we have uh, subjected movies of all types to the same kind of consumerist idea. Do you know what I mean? Yes, as you mentioned it, I'm sitting here thinking, yes, they've turned 
Rotten Tomatoes just become the Yelp. Exactly right. So, so going to the movie, it's like it's like complaining about a bad meal that you've had, and people read the reviews and say, "Well, you know, I guess I'm not going to see this movie because somebody said the." You're exactly right with the Yelp analogy, but think about how devalued it is for certain kinds of movies. Would you ever apply a fresh tomato or a splotch to paintings at a museum? You would never think twice about not doing that. It's, it seems an act of apostasy. It's almost obscene. But we accept it for movies. Now, movies have a different history, right? Movies are steeped in the popular... Uh, pop, it's a popular medium. But people forget that was also the original history of opera. So I, I would advocate us graduating past this thumbs-up, thumbs-down uh, aggregator culture to a more nuanced discussion of these kinds of films and to bring back the cultural relevance. This is a, a message, an, an unconscious and maybe even semi-conscious message to the audience that movies are not really serious works of art. They're kind of junk out there for you to consume, just like McDonald's French fries, no better, no worse. And my argument is that movies are better than that. They deserve greater treatment than that. You've mentioned that your your family enjoys the blockbusters from Marvel with your kids, and and uh, yeah, that's certainly everybody wants Avatar to do well because we want people back into cinemas. But but what do you need from the studios and the cinema operators to to um, to fill out that menu a little bit? What's missing? What is missing is the broad based slate. I mean, let me try to give you a real-world analogy, since you used the Yelp analogy before, which I thought was great. Can you imagine you go to the supermarket, and they have one kind of meat, one kind of bread, one kind of canned vegetable. You can only get okra. That's it. That's your only choice. Your reaction would not be, man, I love okra. That's great. You'd kind of be like, all I get to choose is okra? And what we now have in the theatrical experience is one kind of movie. So what happens then is that it begins to get devalued as part of the discourse. You know, we, we lose it as this kind of like relevant thing out there. So we need different kinds of movies to maintain that broad-based discourse to maintain how relevant and important the cinema is. And it is. It's the great, I think, it's the greatest art form that the human race has ever created. Because it involves all these different types of art, right? Photography and theater and painting and dance and music. And all these things go into the cinema. And we needed it, right? It's like, it's matured and become something of beauty faster than any other art form that we've ever created. Paintings took 40,000 years to mature. Music took 35,000 years. Look at cinema. The Jazz Singers, 1927. Five years later, you have an ocean of masterpieces made by geniuses. We needed it. It's inside of us. What does a cinema screen do for your work that a flat screen does not do? I think the best thing about it is the pause is the pause button is not available to you. I think the pause button has done 
incalculable harm to our skill set of maintaining an audience's attention from beginning to end. You know, Hitchcock used to say that his the movie was only good as good enough as the uh, capacity of your bladder, so that if you had to go to the bathroom in the middle, that the movie was in some way a failure. And I, really, it's a different way of saying the same thing, that our whole skill set used to be attuned towards a series of heightening tensions within a narrative that made your focus uh, the key to our success. In other words, you were riveted to it. You couldn't take your eyes off it. And when you introduce the home viewing experience and the pause button, as I say, well, it becomes almost like the, the experience of reading a book, right? You pick it up, put it down, you pick it up, you put it down. But that's not the same art form. The cinema is like a dream. And you don't pause your dream. So the more in the cinema, you can't do that. You're hostage in the best sense to the experience. And sometimes great art can be, dare I use this word, a little bit of work. It can be a little bit of work. And if you make your way through it, sometimes the reward is even bigger at the end. The pause button kills that. Do you have a sense that you're doing your best work right now? What a great question. Well, the, the honest answer is I, I I don't not because I think I'm doing my worst work right now, but because I don't I don't not I you you're always sort of you're always trying to do your best work. I, what I will say is that I'm sort of you know if you look at the history of the cinema, I'm kind of in my prime in terms of my age, and uh, it's, it's sort of like equal parts experience and and willingness to take a risk which is the kind of, that's exactly the moment, you know? So at my current age, uh, it should be the period where I'm doing pretty much my best stuff. But, you know, what's interesting about movies is there's no guarantee of that. And, and in the seventies, it was when directors were younger than I am, but in the fifties, I was in my absolute, I would have been in my, like Alfred Hitchcock started doing that great stretch, you know, rear window and vertigo and psycho and pretty much ending with the birds. You know, he was in his early 60s. So when you reach your prime, uh, it's not something you can ever know or put your finger on. I'd like to think I am. I think the film I just made is certainly among my best efforts. But you don't fully know, and you're not always growing. Is there something you hope, wish for the audience to to receive as your gift to them for having invested a couple of hours of their time to sit in a dark room and watch your film? What, what is it that you want to hand them? What do you want to leave them with? Thinking. The gift I can give them is to think. You know, when I was a kid, there was a, a theater uh, in Carnegie Hall, actually, in the basement. And you, you took this uh, escalator down and they had a cappuccino and espresso bar. I remember they would have like a street scene of Paris painted on the wall, but it was not meant for the movie. It was meant for after the movie that what you would see is see the movie and then go with your friends to have cappuccino and you would talk about it. Now, maybe some of that's a little pretentious, but the idea is that the movies could be more than a simple diversion because your dream is not just a diversion, right? Your dreams often tell you quite a bit about your feelings at that moment, what you're going through, what you're experiencing. And 
uh, I, I really encourage and love discussion, discourse about a movie. I, I actually weirdly don't mind it if the film gets mixed reviews. I mean, it's not great. You want great reviews. But at the same time, mixed reviews is actually often more of an indicator of high quality work because people will either be like, I loved it or I hated it. Something will trouble people about the work. It's often an excellent sign. If we look at movies over the long haul, the greatest films, the ones that really last, an infinitesimal number of those movies got great reviews upon release. Most of them were quite mixed and hostile. I mean, even something that we now assume is part of the canon, uh, Raging Bull, for example, uh, initial reaction was strangely mixed and hostile in some quarters. Uh, of course, the same is true of Vertigo. Of course, it's true of 2001, where the reviews were actually, as Kubrick called it, uh, from the lumpen literati, as he referred to them, was so bad that he decided to get film directors to give him quotes for the poster. It indicates that it's a point of discussion. And that's our job as artists, to encourage that. Well, I think you, you in Armageddon time, you have created a point of discussion and a thought-provoking, conversation-provoking film that will probably be seen and discussed long after you and I are gone. And so for that, you have our great admiration and, and uh, congratulations. So thank you so much for this film. Well, thank you. And that's just about the most lovely thing anyone's ever said to me outside of my immediate family. So thank you. Well, it's, it's from the heart. We, uh, James, we close this show with a quote of the day. And I think it's kind of interesting. Our quote of the day today comes from China, where millions of citizens are in the third year of lockdowns due to COVID restrictions. In Shanghai, citizens recently began shouting a passionate chant from their balconies and in their marches on the streets. Recordings of these chants have gone viral to millions on WeChat and other social media. What are the crowds chanting? Quote, I want to see a movie. News reports indicate the cry represents the ordinary Chinese citizens' hunger for normalcy and joy. Chinese cinema owners hope their voices will be heard. I want to see a movie is where we leave you today. So thank you, James Gray. Thanks, Wim. And thank you all for listening. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltzecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.